In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Judges chapter 12. After defeating the Ammonites, Jephthah faces a new threat, the angry men of Ephraim who feel left out of the battle. They threaten to burn down his house, but Jephthah fights back and he kills 42,000 of them by making them speak a particular hard-to-say word. Jephthah dies after six years of judging Israel, but then three more judges follow him, Ibzan, Elon, and Abdon. Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Thursday, April 13th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. This is the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We're grateful for the support of the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, a ministry that provides Lutheran resources in various languages around the world. You can learn more about their work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, this morning, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest to help us discern Judges chapter 12, the Reverend Doug Gribbenaugh. He's a pastor and mission advocate at KFUO Radio. Pastor Gribbenaugh, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks for having me back, and it's a real joy to be with everybody again. I, I love these Bible studies and really digging into the Scripture that, quite honestly, I think, you know, we tend to walk past in, in our, daily, our daily lives as Christians. You know, we focus on the Gospels, maybe the Pentateuch, and, and everywhere in between, yeah, we'll dabble our foot here and there. But, uh, the, you know, this part of Judges, I haven't touched this in well, probably since my Old Testament minor prophets exam with seminary. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to it. Isn't that the case, though? You know, we, we dig into the epistles because they are so practical. They're written as pieces of advice from, from the apostle to specific situations. But then, yeah, we don't really think about heading back to judges outside of maybe Sunday school or seminary for us. So getting back into it has been really enjoyable for me, too. I've learned a lot. Uh, and, and while I remember stories like Deborah and Gideon and Barak, and then uh, tomorrow is going to be Samson, um, yesterday and today we've been talking about Jephthah, and that's not one that I think a lot of people really know a lot about. You know, and, and he has one minor appearance in the, in the book of Hebrews, um, but outside of that, he, he's he's really present here in in Judges, and uh, and and that's that's kind of the end of the story, you know. <laughs> Yeah, you know, it, but unlike, say, you know, some of them, you know, Jephthah does get a little bit of background information. We, we learn, um, I think the most, I guess the thing that stands out the most about his story is this tragic vow that he makes. And we talked about it yesterday. But basically, you know, he said to Yahweh, if you will give me the victory over the Ammonites— and he's this strange construction, the way he says it, whatever or whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return shall be the Lord's. I will offer it up for a burnt offering. That is, uh, I don't know if that's an approved way to make a vow to the Lord, but he kept that vow, vow much to his chagrin because the person who came out was his daughter. You know, I, I think so often we do the same thing in our own lives. So we can't pile a whole bunch of stuff on Jephthah here because how often are in our own walk of life, we're encountered with something that, that maybe we really, really want, you know, it's a new job or, you know, you're a little kid, you're like, I really want that for Christmas. And you, and you pray to God 
And then you start to try to bargain with him. Well, you know, if I get this, then I'm going to do this for you. And we become weirdly specific. And Japheth did the same sort of thing. You know, whatever, you know, whoever, whatever comes out the front door, that, well, then I'll do a burnt offering. So he's really sort of doing what we always do, which is trying to bargain with God. And recently in, in uh, you know, the Easter season, we have a wonderful example of our Lord in the garden with, with really how we ought to approach God. Not in the way that Japheth does with, you know, raising the stakes and, and piling it higher and higher. But our Lord says, you know, if it's possible, Father, take this cup from me. But if not, thy will be done. And, and, and he's finished. That's, you know, we lay it in God's hands, uh, just as our Lord has, has shown how to do that. Japheth is, is like us. You know, we try to really kind of wrestle, wrestle out the slot machine of God, give us what we want, what we really, really want, and as if it's some sort of a bargaining agreement, uh, when really the way we should approach it is you know, make requests known to God and then trust that he will do what is good and right, because that's who he is. And he's proven himself to be faithful over and over and over again. You know, we discussed this yesterday, and I don't want to relitigate it, but I just can't help but still think of the idea of who did Jephthah think was going to come out of that door? What would have been acceptable in his mind to give as a burnt offering? I mean, were, were there animals regularly traversing the door? Uh, was it a... Uh, a mother-in-law situation, he's looking to get rid of somebody? No, I, I jest. But, you know, what? what is, you know, he seems so surprised when his daughter comes dancing out, joyful to see him, which is, of course, is very striking in its irony. Um, and, and he's then, coming back victorious from this battle. Uh, so, of course, she's I mean, coming out to celebrate. And we right. have that juxtaposition of high, high joy with absolute terror and dread. <laughs> It just makes me wonder. And then, of course, you know, you talk about Jesus, and, and, and he does things according to the Father's will, according to his own will as God. We mm -hmm. should do things according to God's will. I think it would have been pretty easy for us to say, well, you know what? God wouldn't have willed that he would have kept a vow to sacrifice his own daughter. Uh, and yet he does anyway. In fact, if we read the narrative, if you recall from yesterday, she told him to. She's, she understood that, okay, you made a vow. You have to keep it. Uh, that's very foreign to our understanding. I think we would have weaseled our way out of that one. It's like, Lord, if, if I can get this promotion, I'll be in every Bible study there is at church. And then you get the promotion and you're like, well, you know, except the ones on Sundays. Or the, or the old Adam is so strong saying, oh, see, I got it on my own because I'm actually that good. Ah, oh, thanks, but no thanks, God. <laughs> we, we try to cancel the agreement after the fact. Uh, but, well, you know, it, it also speaks of great faith of his daughter, you know, that, that the Lord would, would rescue her, uh, just as, uh, you know, the binding of Isaac, right? Uh, you know, he, he, he asks his dad, you know, where's, where's, the, uh, where's the animal for sacrifice? You know, well, the Lord will provide Isaac, right? And you know, Isaac lets himself be bound. They've got the wood and the fire. And we don't have in Scripture any, any word of Isaac saying, Hang on now. <laughs> and I think Jeff is talking in much the same way. A, a really tremendous faith uh, in, in the Lord to do what is good and right and, uh, and to be the deliverer that he's promised to be. 
Well, Jephthah is certainly a man of faith, but he also is a pretty smart and wily guy, which is going to come in handy with what we're going to talk about today. Um, I think it'd be a good idea, though, before we get into our text for today, for us to begin our time together in prayer. Would you like to start us off with that? Yes. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Gracious Father, you have promised that you will always be faithful, even if we are faithless. By your Spirit, embolden our trust in you as we hear of the work you have done for your people Israel, your people of old, and the work you continue to do for the people today, the new Israel gathered in your Son, Christ Jesus. Let us always pray, thy will be done, and trust in your merciful goodness. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Well, here we are now in Judges chapter 12. Now, as I told you uh, off the air, you know this is really a section where I probably should have just included what we're going to study today in yesterday's text, and then include what we're going to study at the end of the hour today in tomorrow's. Um, because while this is certainly a, a chapter in its own right, there's not a lot of meat on these bones, but we're going to do our best to go through it. Just wanted to let the folks know that. Um, that you know, And I'm recalling a, a, an adage from when I was at seminary. And now I, I was not a pre-seminary student. I actually spent 10 years in the nonprofit sector being a fundraiser and, and, and a developer. And so when I came to seminary, the thing that my you know, first homiletics class, you know, how to write a sermon, right? You're getting into these things. And we were going through a piece of Holy Scripture, a pericope, right? And in fact, actually, it was down to a verse. And the professor took these first three words of this verse, and he said, I could write a whole sermon based on this. Mm-hmm. And of course, the pre-sem guys who had done exegetical papers, which I'd never heard of before, and had you know practiced writing some sermons in some homiletics classes, they're all shaking their heads up and down. I'm shaking my head left and right, and I'm going, <laughs> I have no idea how you're going to get an entire sermon out of three words. And, and, and the fact is that Scripture is inexhaustible. So even if it is a, a scant 15 verses, uh, I, I think maybe as we round up towards the end of the hour, we'll, we'll probably be asking for more. <laughs> Well, I hope so. You know, that actually reminds me of a time when I was a guest on Sharper Iron with Pastor Timothy Apple, and I think I had Amos or something like that, and he sends it to me, and it's only eight verses. And so I'd only been a guest on the radio maybe a handful of times, and so I I just wrote him through Messenger on Facebook, and I said, Tim, I I don't—how are we going to do an hour? And he just threw together a timeline real quick, uh, sent it back to me. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess there's plenty here. You know, sometimes you just have to take a step back and see what the Lord has to reveal to you. We're going to do that today. Amen. Um, All right. So we're going to read, though, just to get our appetite whetted, the first, oh, I guess the first seven verses. This actually will end the entire narrative of Jephthah. Here we go. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites, and when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, 
I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites, and Yahweh gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Actually, you know what? I uh, fibbed a little bit. We're going to stop there. That's the first three verses. That's a good pause. Hang yeah, on. the reason I'm stopping there is because there is sort of a, a, a big turn, a reveal in this story. But just starting here at the very beginning, I think it's important to note that we've seen this behavior before from the Israelites who are kind of upset that they weren't called to go to battle. In this case, however, uh, he says they were called and they didn't come. But regardless, the conflict here is that the Ephraim, Ephraimites or Ephraimites are upset because, well, they didn't get to go fight the Ammonites. Kind of, a, kind of an odd dispute. And it's really this contention has been, sadly, a hallmark of the, the interaction of the tribes of Israel ever since they came into the Promised Land. You know, coming into the Promised Land after being you know, brought out of Egypt, wandering for 40 years, right, and then finally being delivered into the Promised Land, it should have been a, a, a land of peace. And yet, the tribes then start jockeying for position and authority and power and prestige, chasing after the things of the world once again, instead of following after the heart of God. And over and over again in Judges, we hear how Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and returned to serving idols or demons, uh, most Often it was Baal and Ashtaroth, but over and over again, the people of Israel here are doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord. The, the Lord disciplines them. They cry out uh, then for his aid, and, uh, and then God sends a deliverer. And most often that is in this book, you know, a, a judge to deliver the people. The other interesting thing is that these, these judges, as we call them, there's not a title given to them in the book of Judges, uh, but the word is used for what they do. You know, so Japheth judged Israel, you know, and uh, as well as the other judges, you know, uh, Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, they judged Israel. That was what they did for the people. That is, and not adjudicate as in they you know, wore the, the fancy English wig and the black robes, uh, but that they... They were their leaders. They, they ruled over them. They, they judged what is to be done and, and what is not to be done uh, in accord with, with God's word. And so while we call them judges, the scripture doesn't actually give them that title, but, uh, but is just purely descriptive of the service that they rendered on behalf of the Lord for the people of Israel. But these tribes were filled with this, this warring, this combating, this jockeying for position, and it really, they were so busy fighting each other, it really created an opportunity, a, a window for, for the pagans outside to, to come and stir up this trouble. Of course, we could also say, though, as they were fighting amongst themselves and turning from the Lord, that these outside forces were, were really God's hand of discipline on them to call them back uh, to faithfulness as well. It's interesting that you bring up, and we brought this up before on this series, that you know, the title of judge isn't like, as you said, an adjudicator. This isn't like a court judge, although Deborah does a little bit of that under the tree of Deborah. But really, when you say judge, one thing I've not heard brought out is why we call it judge. And, and you were, I think you touched on that, 
because we said, well, we could call them deliverers. We could call them heroes. We could call them rescuers, uh, even saviors. But is the fact that we call them judge, does that have anything to do with the reality that oftentimes God is judging the people of Israel because of their unfaithfulness and having to send these people to raise them up? I mean, is that kind of on the nose? Why do we call them judges? Well, you know, it, it is a, a, a Hebrew word that's being brought over into English. And perhaps the closest match in our English language is judge. But there are some other options, you know, ruler, prince, um, that, that, that are connected to that Hebrew word. Um, to, to sort of forecast this then into the last day, into the foreign work of Christ Jesus. And I say foreign in that he is the end times judge. He is the eschatological judge who will sit and you know, separate the, the sheep from the goats, separate those two. Um, it, it is foreign, uh, what we say, to his true work, which is to be the redeemer, the savior. Uh, but his his foreign work, the work that must be done because of man's faithlessness, is, is to be that judge, that discerning one, uh, according to God's word, and to separate the sheep and the goats. And in a similar way, uh, these deliverers, these these men of faith, you know, brought to to judge, not by reason, not by man's heart, but by but by the by the wisdom and the power of God, by His Word, and that is the the foundation of that judgment, and that's the foundation of the of the eschatological judge, you know, that His Word is truth, and He judges according to what He has spoken from the beginning of time. That Hebrew word you mentioned is shoftim, um, plural of shofet. This this idea of a leader, deliverer, one who judges, governs, even vindicates the people, it really all of them in their own flawed and sinful ways are pointing forward to that great judge, both in, in, in consideration of all of those aspects, deliverer and governor and vindicator, uh, in Jesus. And what, what, a, what a nice thing to remember here during Easter week. Amen. So we have we have our judge here, and he has just conquered, well, at least one victory over the Ammonites. The Ephraim folks, they are upset, but this isn't the first time, as I mentioned earlier. We have back in Judges chapter 8, they go to Gideon with the same complaint. Uh, 8 verse 1 says, Then the men of Ephraim said to him, what is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And then he actually uses a little bit of diplomacy here, Gideon does. He says, well, you know, is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abazir? Uh, God has given into your hands the princes of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He uses a little bit of diplomacy, and their anger is abated. That's not exactly the approach that Jephthah takes. Um, you know, he, he basically accuses them of not coming when they were called, although I, I guess, at least from our point of view, only knowing what's revealed in the scriptures, we don't have any record of him actually calling them. That doesn't mean, of course, that he didn't. And we actually, if you read before uh, chapter eight, uh, you know, Ephraim had had been responsive in the past with the inquiries and the calls for aid. And then for some reason, and I have yet to discover it in Scripture, perhaps if, if our listeners dig a little deeper uh, in Judges, they'll, they'll find it and send an email. But 
Um, with Gideon, that's when the relationship sours and Ephraim just starts to kind of give him a cold shoulder and, and, and then make these accusations. Hey, why weren't we a part of this victory? Why weren't we a part of this battle? Why didn't you, in, you know, engage us and bring us in? And, and really that is then the, the, this ongoing contention from the time of Gideon up until here now to, to Jephthah, uh, that, you know, Ephraim and, uh, and the men of Gideon, there is just this, this jockeying and, uh, this, this sort of combativeness. Now, of course, the, the man of the, um, the Ephraimites are, as sort of Gideon implied, you know, gifted with slightly nicer land. Uh, they're, they're of a higher stature amongst the tribes uh, than perhaps the men of Gideon. They're a little bit farther out, uh, more in the wilderness. And, you know, it's almost like looking in your own family. There's, there's a certain pecking order amongst the siblings, right? And, and so, you know, the Ephraimites almost perhaps feel uh, maybe cheated out of some of the spoils, some of the glory of this this great battle uh, that that they maybe didn't think was going to go the way <laughs> for uh, for the men of Gideon, and and so you know inference we might say you know, worse construction, worse construction. Uh, they didn't want to have anything to do with it because they figured it was a lost cause, and uh, we don't want to uh, we, we don't want to be associated with that. You know, bring shame upon our our reputation. Uh, but then after the the battles won, well, well, why didn't you uh, why didn't you ask us to help you? And we really have to take Jephthah at his word, um, for we have no other reason to to disbelieve him that that you know the request had been made, uh, but had fallen on deaf ears or you know best construction in this case was just wound up in political maneuvering and the bureaucracy of the day. And, you know, the request didn't make it until after the battle had been won. Uh, but the slight, the, um, the, uh, injury to reputation, well, that remained. And that's, what's bringing the, the, the men of Ephraim down upon Jephthah. I think this is a good reminder too. And I've mentioned it a couple of times. It just bears repeating that these folks, this this nation of Israel, so to speak, is not a singular unified unit. You know, they, they have their own intertribal disputes and their own goals and their own conflicts amongst each other. And this, is, of course, is just one of, of many. They also have a lot of things that they're wanting to do. And you've already brought out that, that perhaps at play here is a desire for human glory. It seems already they've lost who it is that's fighting the battles, who it is that are allowing them to win the day because, you know, God's wanting them to give them this land and run out the people. Well, and, you know, one of the challenges in in the book of Judges, and you can see this in, in the little introductory page found in the Lutheran Study Bible, which I highly recommend, I, I have one, <laughs> is that, you know, when, when it says here, you know, so-and-so judged Israel, that term is not, you know, all encompassing amongst all the tribes. Some of these judges judged a, a portion of the people of Israel in a certain place at a certain time, and within the book of Judges, you, you might have some judges that were judging contemporaneously in different portions of Israel, uh, but it's it's not made clear. So there's a little bit of a struggle reading through Judges 
to kind of set these things right and, and in order and, and really understand, sometimes purely by inference within the context of what Scripture says, whether it was a certain number of tribes or, or a global, more, more globally reaching thing. But we really don't have, um, you know, a, a really unified Israel, you know, of all the tribes you know, for basically another 300 years until we really get to King Saul. So he then says, you know, Jephthah says, well, you know, I had this great dispute. You didn't come and save me when I called you. And when I saw that you would not save me, he uses this language. I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites and Yahweh gave me, gave them, pardon me, into my hand. So I, I think he's giving credit where credit's due, which is great. But this phrase, I took my life in my hand is, is kind of a, it seems like a Hebraism. Because um, we see, say, in First Samuel, it says, for he took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine. We're talking of David. You know, um, we see uh, that uh, the, the woman comes to Saul. This is in also Samuel. And when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand. Job 13, why should I take my flesh in my teeth and put my life in my hand? Just an interesting turn of phrase. It seems like it's a uh, it's probably a, a slang or a colloquial saying that is basically saying I had to do it myself or because you weren't there, I was at greater risk. So he's really turning the tables on them saying, here you are mad at me coming up to me this day to fight against me, he says, but really I should be the one who's mad. What do you think? Well, you know, I have to agree with that analysis because the Ephraimites are, are they're just moaning and groaning that they were completely safe and unengaged in this warfare. <laughs> and and here's Jeff is saying, I asked for your aid and I, and I got, you know, I talked to the hand. I had pure silence. And so I, I risked my everything. I risked my, my nephish, right? My life and laid on the line with the Lord. And that, and that's an important thing to remember that, um, that, that he is, he is putting the, putting the Lord in, in, in his proper place, you know, as, as the one who is the deliverer, he is the one fighting the battle, um, for us. And so, you know, but he's saying, I, in some ways, actually, we could even, you know, sort of say, thank you, Jaffa, for, you know, this wonderful reminder, uh, that it is not by our own reason or strength or, or by our friends, <laughs> you know, that, that we are saved and delivered, but by the by the merciful work of God, uh, that our life is in His hands, right? And we'll risk it all for Him. Well, that's a good place for us to take a pause and a break. Good for us to think about as these messages come across. But folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back in just a few minutes, uh, Pastor Doug Gribbenau and I will keep on going with Judges chapter 12. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. 
but they need our help because Good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Philby. With me today is the Reverend Doug Gribbenau, pastor and mission advocate at KFUO Radio. Friends, I just want to say thank you for gathering around God's Word with us this with us this morning. I'd love to hear from you, though. Please feel free to email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can connect with me on Facebook. You can ask me anything or just say hello. And if you like Thy Strong Word, why not share it with others who might enjoy it and get something out of it, too? Thy Strong Word airs on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org. You can download the KFUO app. You can tune into your favorite podcasting service. There are so many ways to keep abreast of all the programs that we have. And I appreciate that you've chosen to grow your faith with me and my guest every weekday. So thank you so much for being a part of the show. Well, now, Pastor, before the break, we were just getting to the height of the conflict because the Ephraimites are very upset at Jephthah and the, the Gileadites. Is that what we say? Yeah, Gileadites. Gileadites. Yeah, yeah, they are uh, upset because they weren't called to battle. And there's a little disagreement because he says, we did call you and you didn't come. He has disbanded the army. But as we're going to read here in verses four and five, well, he gathers them back together, right? They just got done fighting, and now it's time to get back together again. This is verses 4 and 5 from chapter 12 of Judges. Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. Okay, I, I wanted to isolate those two uh, verses because I think we could really gloss over what's going on here. He gathers together the army again. He just sent them home. Uh, they just all got back home. I couldn't even imagine after their victory over the Ammonites. And now he's like, nope, we got a problem, you know. We're going we're gonna to solve another problem with the sword. Come on back together. Uh, but what does it mean when it says, when they claim that the people they're fighting are fugitives of Ephraim, the Gileadites? They're the Gileadites. So I, I'm a little confused. Oh, you know, and, and well, the, the real tragic thing is that they were initially fighting outsiders, and now it's a sort of civil war, brother against brother, within the tribes. And that's what they're being brought together now to fight, uh, which, is, which is really lamentable. Um, and so, yeah, in, in, and the men of Gilead struck Ephraim uh, because they had been, uh, they, there was some name calling. <laughs> the Ephraimites, you know, said, ah, you are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. The tribes that the, the Gileadites here are from, uh, the tribes of Gad, Reuben, uh, and, and a, a little part of Manasseh, they lived outside the actual geographic boundaries of what was known as the Promised Land. And so, oh, you're fugitives. You know, you, you weren't fit. That's what they're sort of implying, the Ephraimites. You weren't fit to be part of, of Israel, part of this Promised Land. You know, you, 
you are out there. You're actually outsiders. You're not really a part of the family. Even though, you know, Scripture makes notation that, that you know, God approved of this arrangement, that, that these tribes would settle there. Um, and if you want to look it up, you can turn to Numbers chapter 32 uh, for that part. And this sort of uh, derision is not foreign to Japheth. You've probably talked about this previously, but you know, Japheth was the son by a prostitute of, uh, of Gilead, uh, the man. And, and he was a, a mighty warrior. You know, Judges chapter 11 calls him that. But Japheth was driven out of his tribe and driven away by his half-brothers because, you know, he he wasn't, you know, fully really part of the family. You know, you're, you're the son of a prostitute over here, so you're, you're just, you're not quite fit for it, which is really kind of the, the insult that that the Ephraimites are giving to the entire clan of Gilead now. You're, you're not really fully part of us. You're like, you know, sort of half-breeds, half-brothers, uh, you know. You're not, you're not good enough to be in the promised land, and so you're, you're over there. And I was wondering if Jephthah's mother, you know, might have something to do with it too, because you do have this, you get this air of like superiority, right? That they're not, as you were saying, they're not good enough to be Ephraimites, but more than that, it's just interesting that they call them uh, fugitives of Ephraim, basically (laughs) saying that, you know, you are disloyal, renegade, uh, you, you aren't your own thing, you're imposters of us. I guess that's the part which I think yeah, fakers, me. right? Yeah. Fakers might be a, a good way. Yeah. Um, and, and the really interesting thing is, you know, <laughs> the men of Gilead had to, you know, eat crow and, and call Japheth. And in a sort of similar way, you know, the, the Ephraimites are, are almost having to sort of eat crow because the men of Gilead under Japheth by the Lord's hand have, have defeated this, uh, the, the Ammonites and uh, and and so they're sort of having to eat crow a little bit. Well, why didn't you engage with us? And it's really it's a it's a it's a tit for tat sort of sort of thing. You know, the Ephraimites come down there; they're going to burn down the houses. Japheth calls them to account. You didn't come when I asked for your help, uh, and and the Lord made sure that we were okay. And and so then it it, it resorts to this name calling. Um, well, we wouldn't have helped you anyhow. You know, you're fugitives of us. You know. Uh, we're we're better than you anyhow, and, and it really just brings it to a head. It's interesting how quickly this devolves from, you know, maybe, maybe not to put it too lightly, uh, hurt feelings, you know, hurt honor, and and an injury to pride, and then really it, it descends within a few short verses to really strikes with the sword and and tr- terrible bloodshed, um, and a really tragic thing, a, a tragic reality within our humanity. Uh, small disagreements within the family can lead to you know, generational rifts between people who, who, who should be, well, family. And how often we allow uh, injured pride and, uh, and, and hold on to slights uh, without, without forgiveness and, and just let that bitterness uh, fester until it, it comes to blows. I think that's particularly striking in this case because what has started the dispute is that Ephraim is upset that they weren't allowed to go and fight and potentially die 
in a battle. <laughs> you know, it's, and now they're ready to fight and die in a battle because they weren't because allowed to fight and die. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's just saying, you know, their their reasoning is irrational, which is again taking that and dropping it into our current day and context. Uh, isn't all sin irrational? Aren't all the the reasons and the justifications that we come up with for holding grudges or starting civil wars, whether they be well, literal civil wars, there is still war in this world, or whether mm-hmm. it just be disputes within family members. Really, there is no justification for any of it. Everything that we use to justify is tainted by the irrationality of sin. I think of the Hatfields and the McCoys, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> or Romeo and Juliet, even. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a common thread in fallen humanity. It reminds me of a story that I used in a sermon once, and it's apocryphal, I'm sure, but about uh, uh, two Baptist churches down down south, and, and they started a long time ago, um, and one was called One Peg Baptist Church, and the other one was called No Peg Baptist Church. And the reason it got its name is because way back in the day, they were all one church, but the deacons got together and decided that there should be a peg behind the pulpit for the pastor to hang his hat on, and then half the church said there shouldn't be a peg at all, and so, you know, a hundred years later, they're now two different churches because they split apart over this issue and they're called Peg and No Peg Baptist Church. And they don't even know why they're called that anymore unless you look in the history. It's just the Amen. smallest little things. <laughs> you know, and we see this in our congregations too sometimes. You know, deep theological divides are often pretty easily navigated. What ends up tearing people apart are the superficial, silly things. Mm-hmm. The color of the carpet, right? I'm, I'm sure we've all heard that story, right? <laughs> placement of the uh, the placement of the font or whatever right amen well we it's see a good here lesson the, in humility and and you know really to love to love the neighbor as yourself it's amazing how the lord's words are are so simple and yet we make them so hard yeah it's it's almost as if he knows what he's talking about <laughs> right <laughs> amen well what I think is interesting, though, then, is the Gileadites capture the fords against the Jordan against the Ephraimites, which is the last part we read, verse 5. Uh, this is a, a tactic that they used against the Midianites uh, before. So they're, they're using some of the same strategies. They're, they're now capturing the, the, this ford of the Jordan, so I guess it's probably a strategic capture. Uh, but then there's an interesting thing that happens next. I'm going to read verses uh, 5b and uh, all the way through 7. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said Shibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. Sibboleth, pardon me. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell, and Jephthah's judge six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Okay, well, I messed it up. <laughs> so I, I don't yeah, think that I, I might not have survived the test going that's across. Right. Uh, they wanted him to say, at least our English transliterations say, Shibboleth, and then they would say instead, Siboleth. Uh, give us an explanation. First of all, how should it be pronounced so that we can uh, get across the Jordan if we need to? All right. If you need to get across the Jordan, uh, it, it's with the Hebrew letter uh, sheen. Uh, so shibboleth. So a sh sound as opposed to 
uh, the Samic Hebrew letter, which is a sibboleth sound. And in a sort of a modern setting, uh, it, it really comes down to accents. And the, the tribes, it, it's a testament to how distant culturally, uh, just day-to-day interactions, uh, as well as the physical distance, that this, these people of Israel brought out of Egypt, wandering together, you know, big, big tent party uh, for 40 years. And now they've, they've isolated themselves from one another to the point that their pronunciation of, of Hebrew words is distinctly different. Uh, I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and I used to say trash and cash. Mm. And when I went to college, <laughs> I, I was made fun of that. for and, uh, and I didn't like that. So I practiced. I literally sat in, in my apartment on the campus uh, practicing saying trash, trash, and cash. And I had to learn to drop that A down into my throat so I wouldn't say, I don't have any cash with me today. I don't have any cash with me today. <laughs> and even today, I, I almost pause before I say that word because I have to physically change the way my vocal cords work. Uh, and so the, these, the, you know, the accent would betray them, uh, just as we heard with Peter, right? You know, your accent betrays you. Certainly, you are one of his disciples, right? <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, the natives of Gilead would say Shibboleth, and the uh, Ephraimites would, would do Sibboleth. Uh, I, I'm, you know, probably overly emphasizing some of that, but uh, just but, the simple sh versus s. And, well, they uh, certainly would have been able they to were. tell, yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, and I see this idea. I actually heard about modern day shibboleths before I knew the story of Judges. Oh my! So there's this, do it like me because I have not heard this. <laughs> well, there is a there's a modern concept where the, people will use a they call it a using a shibboleth. It comes from this context to determine who's from a certain place. So, for instance, um, if you speak spell a word like color with a U, then, you know, you can use it as a shibboleth to determine that they're probably, they could be Canadian or they could be from the UK, tomato, tomato, aluminum or aluminum, herb or herb. You know, there's all these different types of things that are really related to speaking or words that still are used to kind of test here in Judges 12. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know which movie it is. It's actually, I think, an R-rated movie, so I'll, I'll avoid the details of it. But there's a scene in the movie where they're trying to determine if um, a person is a, a German set during World War II, and he holds up his fingers in the manner, I think it's in which an American would hold them up, which gives him away. I think that. Oh, or it's the other way around. I remember this from when I took German, uh, and I'm, I could be totally wrong. <laughs> So don't uh, don't go uh, passing any shibboleths on any German people <laughs> based on this. But, but if I'm, if memory serves, uh, in in Germany, one is counted on the thumb. Right. So one, two, three, four. And we Americans, you know, number one, you see the big foam finger at the at the football game. <laughs> it, it's your index finger. That's that's number one. That's right. Yeah, we do it the right way with one, two, three. Well, we do it the right way. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, you have terms like soccer and football. You know, and I'm from down south, so I'll say y'all a lot. Uh, I've lost a lot of my southern accent, except for days like today when I've been under the weather for a while, and so I'm slurring words and making mistakes. So you could probably hear a little bit because I'm a little sick. Um, but you know, we we see these 
we see these words that kind of reveal something about you that are part of your, I guess, your culture. So, you know, there, there are modern day shibboleths that, that people use all the time. And, and just what you were saying is a perfect example. In fact, when I first came to Minnesota, that was one of the, the fun things that I like to learn and all the different unique ways that they either pronounce things or will call different things um, or they'll call things differently than what I will call them. Uh, you know, they, certain things that they don't even know about, or they do know about that. I don't know about. It's just, I think it's fascinating culture, but here it is being used really as a test that if you fail, you die. And what I think is fascinating is surely, surely when, when they go to cross this ford, they say, all right, you have to say a word. And the word is, I think it means stream. And so it's like a password stream. And then, of course, what they're listening for is not necessarily the word, but how they pronounce it. They're trying to uh, suss out who's not among them. Um, and 42,000 of them died because they failed this test. You know what? What's I've always thought this interesting, linguistics. Uh, the Roman Empire right, you know, spanned the whole of the known globe, and they, they spoke Latin, right? And then as Rome fell and... You know, commerce between the different colonies ceased. Uh, travel of your of your different government officials and the former colonies became so isolated that Latin became in in Italy Italian, and over there in Spain Spanish, and uh, you know up there in France it became French. So the, all these Latin Romance languages really are are purely dialects of Latin that developed so many years in isolation as to become entirely distinct languages. And so this, the sibboleth and shibboleth, you know, give enough time and you would have people speaking entirely different languages that probably would struggle very hard to, to understand one another, even though they both came from the same source. And I think it's, I think it'd be safe for us to argue too, that even in the text here, especially as it's translated into English, the whole issue is, is simplified for our benefit. There's probably something about the difficulty. I, I think of Asian languages that have difficulty pronouncing, I believe, uh, like maybe our um, R sound and some other sounds that we have in English. So they come out in strange ways, end up becoming stereotypes, really. But I think it's, it's more about, yeah, that, that they are speaking in such a way that they're easily identified. But as you pointed out, over time those identifying characteristics just kind of dissolve into how languages work or they become more pronounced depending on which way the language evolves. Mm -hmm. But, but what was really key is that they are really judging their brother based on his ability or inability to say a certain word. Um, and then 42,000 of them. fell. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so this horrible civil war, um, and that's of the Ephraimites, which I think give us the indication that, of course, nobody wins in this case, but that I suppose Jephthah would have been seen as the victorious one. Yeah, the deliverer again from a, a another another warring faction that uh, wanted to do the the Gileadites in. There's got to be something also to be said that here they are, and they were so eager to die for a cause. It didn't seem like they cared which cause it was, and then they did. Well, I, you know, those who live by the sword die by the sword. And, uh, you know, if, if you're so bloodthirsty <laughs> for, for glory at, at battle, 
Um, you know, I find very often, at least in my own life, this is purely anecdotal, uh, that the, the thing I most want, I sometimes find that I'm given. And it ends up being not really what I wanted. <laughs> now, if you're a big Star Trek fan, you can think of a mock time. And there's a wonderful quote from Spock, right, with the, the man that steals his betrothed, you know, and he says, well, you know, I find that wanting is sometimes a better thing than having. So mm. any Star Trek fans out there, that's that's your watch list for tonight. A mock go, time. I like that one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of sci-fi for, for for our show today. I won't bore anyone else with that. Well, I love Star Trek, so it's been it's been forever though since I've seen. I, I was a Next Generation fan, though. I have to be. Yeah, see, I'm an original series fellow, yeah, Captain Kirk. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can argue the Ka Kirk versus Picard next time, but uh, for now, we'll get into verses eight and thirteen, or eight through fifteen, if you're ready to move on. Well, let's do. Yeah. Okay. So this is the last part of the chapter, but this is one of those cases where we get three more judges right in a row and we don't really learn a lot, but we learned some, we learned something. So let's listen. After him, Ibzan of Bethlehem judged Israel. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters he gave in marriage outside his clan and 30 daughters he brought in from outside for his sons. And he judged Israel seven years. Then Ibzan died and was buried at Bethlehem. After him, Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel, and he judged Israel ten years. Then Elon, the Zebulonite, died and was buried at Aijalon in the land of Zebulun. After him, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, judged Israel. He had forty sons and thirty grandsons who rode on seventy donkeys, and he judged Israel eight years. Then Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Parathonite, died and was buried at Parathon in the land of Ephraim in the hill country of the Amalekites. Okay, well, we get three more, Ibzon, Elon, and Abdon. Um, you know, we don't learn a lot about these, and they aren't the only ones that we would call the minor judges. Uh, I've read somewhere that they're included perhaps just to increase the total number of judges to 12 for symbolic reasons. I'm not sure about that, but... I'm interested in what your take is. I tend to, and I've not heard this uh, this theory. I, I tend to uh, shy away from thoughts that say, "Well, certain things have been have been added because we needed to make a sort of uh, a sort of theological point." Um, and and I'm and I'm not necessarily casting dispersions on those who investigate these things, but uh, simply I, I I find it more that. You know the the spirit has a a purpose for including even even minor details, uh, not as if man was you know thinking so theologically. Oh, we need to have twelve, but that the spirit was saying, you know, I'll, I'll leave a as we might say a little Easter egg for those that want to wrestle with scripture. You'll find you know as you do this that there's twelve, and and there are twelve tribes, perhaps twelve judges. Um, my th general thinking is that we have a, a historic recording. Um, and while these these judges, these three, uh, you know, didn't have any sort of tremendous life event, uh, any great struggle, civil war, um, they they performed their their duty as the Lord had called them to do, uh, to to judge the people, which is to to give them leadership and uh, discernment and and to you know uh, guide them in the way that the Lord would have them walk. 
And quite honestly, uh, they probably did a really great job uh, because there's very little written about what they did. They judged faithfully. uh, They judged rightly. And there weren't dramas and and controversies that would uh, require more and more chapters in the book of Judges. Uh, So perhaps even though in our in our eye we're like wow these these are minor judges uh, they might have actually done a, an even better job uh, because there's so little to be written about their time that's true right there's not as much gossip about them not as much to pass on you know i i don't know if i hold specifically to the idea that the writers added 12 just to shore up the numbers But at the same time, I think what's being indicated here is that there's the potentiality for many more judges that went unnamed at all. So you end up having six so-called major judges, major only because we know a little bit more about them than the so-called minor ones. Um, But there could have been many, many more in more localized areas. Um, So you're right. The Holy Spirit certainly does it on purpose. I don't know that we all will ever know what the specific purpose is beyond, of course, what the scripture tells us. But yeah, and people do, people do spend an inordinate amount of time sometimes trying to make the numbers mean something that they don't. And I think we have to be careful about that too. It's a, it's a wonderful balancing act, if you will, with, with scripture. Um, you, you want to look for connections but you want to only look for the connections that the spirits established and not try to uh, do what we call, you know, eisegesis, which is we inject our own thinking into it and then try to find a reason for it uh, as opposed to exegesis, which is, you know, you take the scripture and you let it speak to you what it's saying. Um, I I think of it like a, like a good science experiment, you know, a good science experiment, you posit your theory, you do the test and you see what the result is. Now, bad science is, you find out what the result you want, and you make a test that gives you that result, <laughs> which really doesn't help. And so we, we need to be careful with our scriptural approach that, that yeah, we're, we are, are positing our, our theory. We engage with scripture. We let scripture say, yeah, or no, uh, and, uh, and let it speak and be its authority. Yeah. Well, we have Ibzon of Bethlehem. There are two Bethlehems, right? One in Zebulun, one in Judah. And usually when it's the one in Judah, they'll mention that. So it might might stand to reason that that's the one in Zebulun, especially since following him is the most famous Elon until recent memory. Elon the Zebulonite. Um, And he uh, is in in Zebulun. And then, of course, we have the last guy. And I think the curious point that's brought out here is that he rode on 70 donkeys. My commentary suggests that that is just telling us that he is a wealthy man. Uh, but you think of these sort of, <laughs> when we look back and we think, you know, why why mention that he has 70 donkeys? It would have meant a little bit something different to them than to us. But I think that indicates his wealth, uh, but I'm not sure what else. Anything else about these three judges or, of course, about Jephthah uh, or anything else as we come to the bottom of our show? Well, sure. You know, th- these last three judges... Um, had, had large families, um, and, you know, very little controversy in their judging. Uh, so, I, you know, I, th- I think we can really point to this and say, you know, they, they understood their vocations because it's, it's not just to be a good judge and, and, you know, forget your family, and your wife and your children, you know, you, you need to be, and, and this is the doctrine of vocation. And it's a, it's a struggle, but the Lord helps us in this. You know, 
for a pastor, you, you need to be a good and faithful husband if the Lord has blessed you with a wonderful wife, right? And, and a good and faithful father if the Lord has blessed you with children. And a good and faithful pastor since the Lord has entrusted his sheep to you. And these three locations, each one is tremendous and, and time-consuming. And the same with the judges here. But they 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 dedicated themselves to these doctrines of vocation. They, they had big families, um, which which in this day and age, you know, would sort of belie that they were, they were good family men, right? Good families. They took care of their families, uh, and, and good judges, uh, that they ruled for a fixed number of years, no big controversy. It's interesting that we've moved so quickly from, you know, decades of judging, uh, with, with Tola and, and Jair, Japheth, he gets six years that he's the judge of Israel. Uh, Ibzan, seven years. Elon makes it a full 10. Uh, Abdon, eight years. And then we're going to come, I guess, in the next episode to to Samson, which is a, a completely sort of a, a big departure from from the judges in, uh, that we've been dealing with. Uh, but, uh, you know, short periods of year, but faithful, faithful judges, faithful husbands, uh, faithful family men. And, uh, and really just a commendable example for us to, uh, to love the Lord, to serve your neighbor and your nearest neighbor, you know, to be the, the wife and the kids uh, next to you. Well, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Doug Gribbenaw, pastor and mission advocate at KFUO Radio. Thanks, Pastor, for being on the show with me this morning. Thanks for having me on, everyone. And, uh, you know, since it is still Easter week, alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Well, folks, when we meet again tomorrow, we'll find Israel suffering under the cruel rule of the Philistines. It was then that God raises up another hero. He comes to a childless woman with the stunning announcement that she would give birth to a son who would be God's chosen instrument to rescue his people. Well, sounds familiar, but this is long before Jesus. This man would be a Nazarite set apart for God from the womb with supernatural strength and a forbidden haircut. His name was Samson. And his story is one of adventure and romance and tragedy. So don't miss this next episode in the life of Israel's most fascinating judges. So tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all. Until then, Father, keep us in thy strong word.